There we go. Hi. <laughs> I hit. I thought I hit the mute button. I must have missed it by a fraction of an inch because I looked up the green bar wasn't there. See, sometimes we've had to have people contact us, say, oh, we see your yes. mouths moving, moving, but you are saying nothing. Yes. So, anyway, and great I, to be. I always tell people those were the days we were so funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that, that, <laughs> us at our best is what they missed. Yes, yes. <laughs> is that what you're saying, Patty? Yeah, of course yeah. it's probably not true. No, but. I don't think it's true. Anyway, glad y'all are back with us to resume our journey through Second Thessalonians, right, on this yes. lovely Monday. Chilly, but sunny. Hey, we'll take tomorrow, those days. We're, yeah. it's not going to stick that we're going to get accumulation, but you know, it's supposed to snow. Well, if I could see a few snowflakes falling and the so roads nice. stay drivable that be without getting icy, that's kind of perfect, I yes. guess, really. Right? I lived up north too long to be yes. too too hungering for a big mess. And, of course, I'm still think what everybody went through two two winters ago in 2021. That was, that was, brutal. That was too awful. So it was. That when the sure grid was. pretty well collapsed, nearly. So, anyway, glad y'all are here. Let's see. Anything new and big? Anything new? No. Not really. No. You know, we're 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 just moving on through. Plowing for through. Second Thessalonians today and first Samuel tomorrow. They're kind of you know what I, I was working on both and they're kind of related a little bit. They are, really, truly. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, that's always kind of good. That is good. That is so, good. And it's, yeah, it just is. Because then you kind of go back and forth when you're teaching each class. You could, you know, you kind of pull something from the other one. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, what but do you think, Patty? It's good. Everything I I'm going to roll think, up my sleeves since yeah, I'm getting down to business getting today. Getting down to business. <laughs> All righty. <laughs> Should I open us up with prayer? Hi, Susan. Happy Monday. Hi, other Susan with the little snowflakes and Kathy and Nancy. and Yeah. yeah. Good group today. Yeah. Always a good group. Always a good group. Hey, yesterday hey. we had one of the most, um, the most number of people that we have probably ever had in your class. We I mean, were pushing close to 300 yes, if you include the online people. It was true. We had like 60 plus on, you know... Uh, not screens, but people. There is Online. a there is a way that the church figures that, and almost two thirty in person. So it was just shy of three hundred people, which is pretty awesome for pretty awesome a Sunday in January. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good yeah. things happening at the church. Yes, so that we, we are glad to be glad part of. That. I hope you are too. So, okay, probably ready. Probably ready. Let's pray, gracious Lord. We return to Second Thessalonians on this Monday, um, and as we were in last week with this, there's difficult things to talk about, and 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 we just pray that you would open our hearts and you would open our minds and you would help us be ready to engage the full truth of of Scripture and and who you are and more importantly, really, I think, who we are. Um, even when there are things that we don't want to hear, um, some of those things we do need to hear. And uh, I, th I think some of, some of that is going to be what's going on today. So, all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. All righty. Let me scoot over. Let me get that out of the way here. Okay. So, let me just tell you where we are. 
in case you can't remember, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We stopped around verse 5 or 6. We're going to go back a couple and kind of read into this. And, you know, it's, um, it, it's a difficult passage, I think, for Christians in our world. And the reason is, and that's why it is skipped. I told you last week that the difficult part of chapter 2 in 2 Thessalonians is just skipped in the common lectionary. They just leave it out, assuming the preachers don't want to deal with it. But um, we're going to because we read and, and consider every verse from beginning to end in a letter like Second Thessalonians. And I don't see a reason to stop here. And so what I um, would like to do, I think, after giving this some thought, It's just go, go, just open your Bible to the beginning of chapter 2. Okay, so where Paul begins at the beginning of chapter 2 in the first verse is to address the problem. And the problem is that there are those in Thessalonica who are worried that the day of the Lord has come. Okay? Or, and there seem to be some who have even gone there teaching that. And so, so Paul's overall problem that he is addressing is that problem. And he's going to do it sort of with the strategy of, of helping to talk them through the truth that, well, you know, no, Jesus hasn't come back. This hasn't happened. And there are let's speak some truth about the times that we live in. And I think the truth about the times they live in is also the truth about the times we live in. For whether it's Paul in Thessalonica or us almost 2,000 years later, the great commonality is that we all live in the last days. The Thessalonian Christians, the Plano Christians, Frisco Christians, we all live in between the times. We all live in the days between the coming of Christ and his return. And being human, we want to have lots of signs and other ways of kind of knowing when Jesus is going to come back because we are often not happy just saying to ourselves, well, I just need to be ready because I don't know when it's going to come. I just need to be ready. And I need to be the best disciple that I can be, loving God, loving others. Um, and if Jesus comes back in my lifetime, okay. If he doesn't, okay. It's God's timing, not mine, that matters. So, but that is not, in the history of Christianity, that's not the way it's always been. History of Christianity is that there have been lots of people who have said they know what that timing is. And, and that's what's happening right here. So look at verse 3. And he says to them, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, the Lord's day, again, what we're talking about that day, just to be clear, is at the far right on this chart. It is the second coming of Christ. That is the day of the Lord. It came already 
but has not obviously not fully manifest. There's still all sorts of things wrong in this world, but it will be fully manifest, fully completed, if that's the word we want to use, when Jesus comes a second time. And he is reassuring them that, well, you didn't miss it. <laughs> he hasn't come a second time. So don't let, he begins verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction, or actually in the Hebrew idiom that Paul uses, the, the son of destruction is, is revealed. Well, they and weren't expecting very much, I guess, when Jesus is coming since they thought it well, was Well, it's, 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 it's a Jewish idea, Patty, that the day of the Lord would be preceded by a lot of rebellion against God and would even even come to a head. It would be sort of like it's around, it's around, and then there'd be this big buildup, you know. And so if you talk to first century Jews in Jesus' day, their view would be, well, yeah, it's building. Okay, the Romans are here. Pontius Pilate is desecrating this and that. And... Um, but, but the Jewish idea was that, that that rebellion would grow in the time before the day of the Lord. And for Christians, they kind of absorbed that and said, okay, well, and Paul does, right? Yes. And this man of lawlessness, we said last week, well, does he actually have somebody in mind? Or is the son of destruction... Um, Satan, who works presently, worked then against God's purposes. Is it some human figure he has in mind from his day? Um, the difficulty is, in the end, it's futile. Futile to try to bring something like the man of destruction and tie it to somebody in our world. And there have been all kinds of candidates. I was reading through a list um, and one of the later ones is Mikhail Gorbachev in a book about him in 1989. Yes, he, he was this man of destruction, this son of destruction, the man of lawlessness. And no, no. So, so we just have to restrain our desire to put names with all this and, and see the larger view of, of, a growing rebellion against God, a growing turning away from God, um, perhaps a growing number of leaders who exalt themselves rather than exalting God. But don't think that that's a new problem. Like this had, like when you read it in Paul, or we come to it now, like that's a new thing. So I, I, I wanted to bring to you a couple of um, scripture passages. You don't, we're not going to really, we don't have to track them all down. Let me just read them to you. These are Old Testament passages spoken by prophets to kings who exalt themselves rather than exalting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One is in Daniel, and he speaks of the pretensions of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, who precipitates the 
Jewish rebellion that lead of about 165 years before Jesus. And in Daniel 11:36 it says, The king shall act as he pleases. He shall exalt himself and consider himself greater than any god and shall speak horrendous things against the god of gods. He shall prosper until the period of wrath is completed for what is determined shall be done. Okay? Then one from Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, speaking to the king of Tyre. Tyre was up sort of in Lebanon. Okay, that's a good way to think of it. Sort of north of Israel on the coast. So Ezekiel says, You have said, like dear king, quote, I'm a god. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. Then Ezekiel goes on, But you are but a mere mortal. You're not God, though you compare your mind with the mind of a God. And then Isaiah does the same thing in taunting the king of Babylon. And Isaiah says, You said in your true heart, quote, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the top of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, there is no shortage of <laughs> local, regional, national, and world leaders who want to exalt themselves. That's just the truth of it. It is the temptations of power are immense. And it leads some to even abandon God. And that, in my view, is happening to Certainly, people being willing publicly to do that has changed immensely in my own lifetime. I'm sure there were lots of people who put themselves forward as Christians in my childhood and youth and young adulthood and so forth who, I don't know, it's just kind of a, they would say so because everybody did. But now there's people are more comfortable being publicly derisive about God and writing big books and bestsellers about there being no God. And I want to, maybe I will have you turn, turn to Psalm 14, just 14, <laughs> just 14. Okay, and I'm going to find my actual reading glasses here. That's a nice little short one. Yeah. So Psalm 14 is is actually a really good psalm to know, um, to, to know where it is, because it is a reminder of God's view of things. So Psalm 14, verse 1. Fools, fools say in their heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on humankind. Oh, I'm reading, by the way, from the NRSV. I'm sorry, but it's what I have open. Okay, there we go. Yahweh looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They've all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. 
There is no one who does good, no, not one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat my people up as they eat bread and do not call upon Yahweh? Theirs they shall be in great terror, for God is with the company of the righteous. You would confound the plans of the poor, but Yahweh is their refuge. Oh, that deliverance for Israel would come from Zion when Yahweh restores the fortunes of his people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. So what is the psalm about? The psalm is about the Israelites striving to be true to God, striving to be faithful, and yes, they fail time and time and time again. In a world in which people deny, deny the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and worse, exalt themselves as if, as if they are the possessors of all of the knowledge and power that we that we need in which we can in which we can can flourish so it's it's all I, my my purpose is simply to say that i have read too many things in the past two decades where second thessalonians 2 is misused and it's misused to try to identify specific people and i urge us not to do that the problem paul is addressing the rebellion against God, the exaltation of, of people above God in their minds, that was a problem. Then it is a problem now and has been a problem to varying degrees and in various places for 2,000 years. We want to think we have all the answers, but we don't. Okay? So let's let's just read on a little bit. I'll put on the correct glasses for this. Man, oh man. So talking about this son of destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. There you go. Now, you, you don't have to make this someone specific. Right? There is no shortage of people who, who basically exalt themselves rather than exalting God. They may not say the words, I am a God, but they basically take on the trappings of it and make pronouncements about important things as if they were. And in Paul's world, of course, Caesars were seen as being semi-divine, semi-divine beings, because the, the pagan gods and goddesses were all in a, think of it as a triangle. This is the, this is the pantheon of, of pagan gods and goddesses in a triangle. And at the top is like the top god, like Zeus, Jupiter. And, it, and you work your way down through various levels, you know, and at the bottom are these semi-divine human god figures, like Caesar. 
like Caesar. And that's why see, the Caesars, as the first century goes on, even demand to be worshipped. And temples were built to Caesar. And people were, were made to come and to pay uh, a, a temple offering to Caesar. Um, it, became, it became a religious way to sort of tie the Roman Empire together. Think that, well, there's all these different beliefs and religions in the Roman Empire, so we will unify ourselves because at least, at a minimum, we will all worship Caesar. So maybe Paul has some of that in mind. Seems natural enough. Maybe, maybe that's what he means. But the idea that sitting here in 2023, we could identify some son of destruction um, that this chapter is pointing to, I just think is, I just think it's futile and, and kind of silly and kind of a waste of time. Not, not what God would hope that we would do. So before I go on, any thoughts or questions? Anything online? Anything from Patty? No, honey, nothing from me and nothing online. Okay, so before we go on, I really did homework for this chapter, okay? So one of the people I always enjoy reading is a woman named Beverly Gaventa Roberts. And she is the Distinguished Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Baylor, at Baylor Seminary down there, at Truett, Truett Seminary in Baylor. And she's been there ah, 20 years or so now. And she wrote a commentary on Second Thessalonians. And I thought she had some really good things to say. And I want to bring you one paragraph just as an introduction to kind of what we're doing. She writes, having examined the new characters in this story, that will be the man of lawlessness and the restrainer who we're about to meet, and we did meet briefly last week, we turn to the plot, which is simple and direct, at least on one level. On the, is it plot you're saying? Plot. Okay. P-L-O-T, the plot of the story. Okay. As a result of the deceptive activity of Satan, lawlessness is already at work in the world key part of the plot. Something or someone is now restraining the full force of that lawlessness. Who is that? Maybe it's, maybe Paul has in mind God. At some future point, the restraining force will be set aside. Full-scale rebellion will break out, and the lawless one himself will appear and challenge the rule of God. When that happens, the parousia, that is the coming of Christ, we talked about that word last week, will take place, and the Lord Jesus will destroy the lawless one with the very breath of his mouth. That's all it takes. It's kind of like at the end of Revelation, just the breath of his mouth. The, <laughs> then she writes, the Cliff Notes version of this story might read as follows. Evil is powerfully at work in the world and will stage a final rebellion, but God's agent that being Jesus, will defeat it. So that's, you know, that's Paul's basic plot line for, you know, for the last days. And, and... Isn't that kind of like a good synopsis of the book of Revelation? 
It kind of is. In the book of Revelation, that is what happens. In the book of Revelation, it's this ever-growing rebellion against God, and it's actually told and then retold. And you're looking for, can't anybody be faithful? Can't anybody be faithful? Until God's agent steps in. In the first part of Revelation, it's a couple of faithful witnesses. In the second half of Revelation, it's Jesus himself who comes riding in on the, you know, on the white horse leading, leading the angel armies. But it is the same idea that we live in a world in which, in which evil flourishes. Now, what is the source of that evil? It is the human rebellion against God. It is in our own heart. And when the restraints are removed, that evil flourishes. I just thought of an idea. I don't know. I'll make a connection. This may this may be lousy, Patty. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> okay, so in the founding of America, the founding fathers set up a system with two houses of Congress, the executive branch, the Supreme Court, all set up with these checks and balances. And some people could say, well, it keeps us from doing anything that we want to do. Well, they didn't want too much done because they were concerned about what we would do if we were not restrained. So the system in the U.S. Constitution is supposed to restrain us. That's why people who, who, who say, no, no, we need to get rid of it, or we need a new constitutional convention to get rid of it, or it's keeping us from do, doing too many wonderful things, the Founding Fathers would say, stop, stop. You know, you've lost sight of who you are. We, we and you, we're all sinful people, and we need to be restrained from going crazy and 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 doing doing a lot of harm so i think that that restraint could be many things that paul is talking about so d let me just go on to verse five he says don't you remember that when i was with you i used to tell you these things and now you know what is holding him back this son of destruction so that he may be revealed at the proper time. Now that's a very biblical idea, that there's a, that there's a proper time for things. Peter says, ah, don't be in such a hurry for Jesus to come back. There's a time for it. And you gotta remember that a thousand years for us is a day for the Lord. So, there's a proper time. There's a proper song about it, right? Yeah. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, yeah, a, which is yeah. a time and a purpose for everything. Yeah, right. And there's a proper time. Yes. You know, I think in our lives we know that there are proper times for certain things. Um, it's not necessarily calendar related, but that there are proper times. Certain things need to happen before the next thing happens. So. So Paul writes, now you know what's holding back this son of destruction so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Indeed, Paul. In, in you know, 50 A.D. and 2023 20, A.D. 
but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. I don't know who the he is. Maybe it's God. A very biblical idea is that God's grace works in the world. And if a person comes to God repentant, God will, of course, forgive them. But if a person refuses to repent long enough, God may just leave them to their own, to the consequences of their actions and decisions. It's like, it's like God's hand is removed from them. That's kind of what lies behind the story, I think, of Pharaoh and Moses when it talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart or God hardening his heart. It's, it's like God takes his hand off Pharaoh and Pharaoh is then free to just be this person who's going to end up riding chariots out to strike down lots of you know Hebrew slaves if he had his druthers. So verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So, like Beverly Gaventa Roberts has in her simple plot, evil, rebellion is with us. Evil is with us, not as a separate force created by God or something. But evil that comes out of the human heart, this darkness, is, is, is with us. And it ebbs and flows. But its days are numbered. Its days are numbered. The day will come. We don't. We we can't predict it. The day will come when Jesus returns, and sin and death are swept off the table, and God's victory over sin and God's victory over Satan are won. And it's and how is that done? With all the trappings of power in our world? No. By just by His breath. It is God's breath that sweeps across the waters of the earth in Genesis 1 and creates. And now it will be Jesus' breath who sweeps across the world, vanquishing sin and death and murder and gossip and cancer, and envy, and lust, and theft, and all this long litany of the wrongs in this world, all the wrongs that need to be put right, all the wrongs that make God wrathful. We talked about this last week, and today I was reading a tweet of all things by Timothy Keller. Now, if you don't know what Timothy Keller is, he is the founding pastor of a church, a Presbyterian church in Manhattan, right down there, all like on Wall Street and stuff, right down there, Trinity Presbyterian. 
and he is an orthodox, straightforward Christian preacher and teacher and theologian, and he built, God built, God used him and his many gifts and talents to build a large, powerful church in Manhattan because he spoke to the people there the truth, the truth about the gospel and about God and about and about and about Scripture. And this tweet that he and the, sadly, just to put a cap on that, Timothy Keller was um, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer two years ago, three years ago. He's still with us, um, and he still tweets some, and um, some of his older writings, little snippets out of it are tweeted, but he said in the, this tweet that, you know, as a young man, he was put very much put off by any talk of the wrath of God. But he came to understand that you can't speak of the love of God without speaking of the wrath of God. Because a God who loves is a God who will be wrathful at abuse and murder and cancer and all of the things that are wrong with this world. You want a God to be angry about all of that. You want to be a you want a God to be angry that some guy, some old guy, I guess, would take a pistol into a dance club and kill ten people, which happened in Monterey two nights ago, right, Patty? Something yes. like that? Yes. So wow. You know? Yeah. So, um, and I, I think that's what you see being expressed in this by Paul. It's just it's just a way to to understand what's happening in the world. Now, I saw that Linda Waldo put a comment. It seems to me that Satan is behind all the evil in the world. I hear what you're saying, Linda. But, but just understand that Satan doesn't make people do things. Satan tempts people to do things. It is the power of Satan that, and the temptations that he offers, the temptations to power, to money, to sex, to the things that, that generate so much wrong in this world, um, that, that's, that Satan does. But it not, in no case does it absolve of, of us of our responsibility we have a responsibility to choose right. There'll, there'll, we face a lot of temptations in life. Some, I guess, come from Satan. I think I've faced temptations that don't. I don't think Satan tempts me with an extra piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> but but we, we need to make good choices, right? We need to make the choices that God would, would have us make. So look at verse 9 in keeping with Linda's comments. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And what is that lie? 
What do you think that lie actually is? What's the lie? What's the fundamental lie? The fundamental lie is that we are the center of all things and not God. That we humans need to be exalted and not God. Or the planet needs to be exalted and not God. Or Mother Nature needs to be exalted and not God. Anything that, that you would exalt to or above God, that's what, that's what the lie is. The lie is, I mean, I guess there are many forms of the lie. The lie is that we have it within ourselves to fix all of our own problems. If we would just come together and sing Kumbaya or have a Coke together and or just have a big enough hug or whatever it is that we have within ourselves the resources to make ourselves right and hence the world right, and we don't. Yeah, Lord, just put that we're good on our own. We're just right. We're just. Yeah, we're just. There was good on my. I'm. I'm good. I'll get there. I'm all right. Yeah. I'm all right. It's like that old book title. I'm okay. You're okay. No, we're not okay. We're not okay. It's a. It's a problem of theological anthropology. It's a failure to understand the most basic things about humans, and probably the most basic and important thing to understand about humans is that there is a darkness in our hearts. All of us. You know, there are stories told among preachers about people. You know, one of them, I, I was told this happened at St. Andrew. I don't really know if this is, if that's true or not. But that one Sunday, in the traditional service, after we said the traditional confession, which we only use once in a while. I don't know, we we, we should say it more often than we do, this traditional um, piece of confession liturgy. And somebody came up and said, well, I, I don't like that we do that because I don't really have anything I need to confess. And that's, that's, that's blindness. Woe be unto this person. They're blind to who they are. And and you just pray that, that God will open their hearts in such a way that they come to see that they were blind before. Um, I've often thought for many years that the people who, who I meet, or in some cases read about, okay, who are closest to God are the ones who have the deepest sense of their own sin. It's it's the opposite of what, what you would think. Looking at them from the outside, they say, well, they're so close to God. They, I mean, gosh, they can't, how, how much sin? But you talk to them and they have a deep and abiding sense of what is wrong. And then that drives them even closer to God. So, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. It's sort of, yes, of course, of course. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Because people like a show. 
right? They like a show. So you can have a show that misleads people. It could be a show about all kinds of things. If it's, the show is anything that drives people away from God and toward the lie. And sadly, it's not hard because it's like that bug light I talk all the time. <laughs> now we are attracted to the bug light, even if it's gonna lead us to our destruction, as in the movie, A Bug's Life. And there's just, there's just, we are easily, we are easily deluded. And I know that we live in a time when this is an ever-growing problem. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth. They loved the lie rather than loving the truth. Maybe they're a really, really, really smart person who was so enamored by their own intellect, they just couldn't handle the idea that there was anything in this world that they couldn't understand. And so when they come exposed to even bits of the truth about God and the mysteries of God and, and they can't quite figure some out, they just walk away. Mm -mm. Perhaps it's people who are so in love with their status in the world or want to accumulate the power over others in this world or this is, this is the real trick. This is Satan's real. Let me tell you what Satan's real trick is. Satan's real trick is for them to say to themselves, if I just embrace this, I'm not going to call it the lie, this thing, look at all the good I can do with it. That's, that's the basic story in The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is about this ring of great power. And it's so attractive. It's so attractive. But it leads to ruin. Because it's, it's a lie. The, the, the ring belongs to the evil Lord Sauron. Maybe I'll use the name Satan here. But it's so attractive. And there's so much power there to do good things. You do good things that you don't even realize that the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're taken over by the darkness. And in the book, The Lord of the Rings, you're Boromir, the man who ends up dying after having been overtaken by the ring. I think there's, there's just a lot of truth in that. We, you know, sin is about taking good things and making them making them ugly. I think one thing about the Lord of the Ring, too, is that we, we tend not to think that really good people can be, could ever come under, like, the spell of Satan. But you see within that movie really good people. The evil is so strong 
that it even grabs And what does them? it require of them to not even take the ring? Don't even imagine. Don't take the ring. Can't even don't hold the ring. Don't touch it. Yeah. Don't touch it because you will. There's just. There's just. I think we all would like to think that there would be nothing ever that would tempt us to do X, whatever X is. Right. There's no way. But, you know, it happens. And I think that's like in the Lord of the Ring that, you know, these really good men, these good warriors and protectors and kings, and they all have the same temptation. I'll do so much good with it. Yes. Yeah, I just think that somewhere in there, there is a lot of wisdom. Yes. All the Verse 10, all the ways of wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Because loving the truth means what? Loving Jesus, loving God. Jesus is what? Ah, John's Gospel, the way, the truth, and the life. You can't claim to love the truth and yet turn away from Jesus. That's just not an option in the Bible. Jesus is the truth. God is the truth. Jesus' way is the truth. The gospel is true. And so those who love the truth are those who will be rescued because they will have placed themselves in Jesus' trust. They will have entrusted. They will have entrusted themselves to Jesus. Rather than to whom? Rather than to themselves or, or their, even their friends or family or schools or governments or politicians or kings they they love the truth and they and and so be saved because they are entrusting themselves to the truth so now the they here go back they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved for this reason God sends them the perishing a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Well, that sounds tricky, doesn't it? For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion. Now, that's one translation of the Greek. The idea is, it's like with Pharaoh. It, 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 you, you run into this Old and New Testament. This, this truth That, that you can rebel against God to the point where God will simply take his hand away. Take, um, take his hand away and, and let you reap the consequences, the full consequences of your own actions. In 1 Samuel, we're about to read about two, the, the two evil... The two wicked sons, I call you use the word wicked, I like the word wicked. The two wicked sons of Eli, the high priest. His wicked sons are named Phineas and Hophni. And um, we're told by the narrator in 1 Samuel, 
but Samuel, maybe it's actually from God to Eli, can't remember exactly, that, that they're going to die. Now, is it that God is waiting to smite them? No. But it is that God is going to withdraw his hand from them on account of their wickedness and utter unwilling, unwillingness to abandon their way, and then that leads them quit rather quickly to their deaths. Um, because God has created a universe in which there is like this fabric of moral causality. And it isn't, as I've said many times, this is from Terence Fretheim, uh, Old Testament theologian I like a lot, that it isn't like it's silk, where it's all perfectly logical and tightly woven and instantly, you know, it's more like burlap, which is, if you know what burlap is like, it's all kind of loosely woven and kind of rough and so forth. But yes, but yes, when you walk away from God far enough, yes, God will let you go. And as some have said, the chickens will come home to roost. You know, I think that it's hard sometimes when we come onto these passages, and I think that's why it probably is cut out of the common lectionary, because we kind of come to church wanting positive, uh, very trendy word, positivity. We want happiness. We want little bunnies and joy and all that kind of stuff. And so we don't want to hear about how we really are. And we don't want to hear about those who, by their own choices to rebel against God without end, finally reap the consequences of those choices because God doesn't doesn't treat us like children. You know, if 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 we were children it would be a different thing. I mean I can I've raised three boys. You didn't always let your kids reap the consequences of their actions. You protected them from them. But you came to a point when they got old enough you realized, well, if they're gonna keep growing, they, they, they need to reap some of those consequences. Then you're figuring out, how do I make sure the consequences aren't too bad? But then then they get to be full adults, and wow, they are on their own. You know? Yeah. If you rob a bank, you're going to go to jail, and there's nothing the parents can do about that. So, um, okay. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, so that they will believe the lie. This delusion, people live in this delusion. I have books on my shelf about the delusion. Christopher Hitchens' book, the guy's now dead. I wonder how surprised he was after he died. Christopher Hitchens' book, God is not great. Ah. Deeply sad. Smart guy, but deeply sad. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that we will believe the lie and so that all shall be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So this is sort of this, you know, no matter what part of the Bible I teach, the Bible is driving home the truth that there are two paths 
There's not 57 paths. paths. <laughs> there, there are two paths. One path is God's way. The other path is our own. And our own is the path of wickedness. It's just think to the last verse in the book of Judges. For in that time there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Not God's eyes, their eyes. That's anarchy, that's chaos, that's wickedness, that's destruction, that is unbridled violence and terror. For there is something wrong with us. And we must believe the truth. We must, and, and we have to keep coming back to it. Right, Patty? I mean, you, got, you, you can't just say, well, okay, you know, I'm with Jesus, now off we go. You know, kind of back to the party or whatever. It's like every day you have to get up and put, and put one more foot Put one more foot forward on God's path. And if you find yourself chasing the bug light, you have to stop. Well, the temptation is always there. Yeah, the temptation's always there. So it's 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 always a matter of growing grow what well, the biblical phrase, growing in righteousness, right? Yes. Growing in in the do in the understanding of doing of, of what is right in God's eyes, not our own eyes. We live in a time when people want to follow their hearts. Well, don't follow your heart. Your heart will lead you astray. You want to follow God. So, okay. So, Patty. Yes, sir. Do you have anything to add to all of that? Or can I put You could put a big check mark on those. Put a put a <laughs> put a check mark right there. Yes. Okay. So we're going to go just a little bit further. Um, I need to end a little bit early. I've got a meeting up at the church. I have to. I need to go to in a in a little bit. So, um, but let's just kind of get out of some of that stuff we've spent an hour talking about. Okay. Because it is hard. It is hard. I get that. So look at verse 13. Verse 13. So he says, but, and you can see now what he's going to do. But, Paul says, we ought always to thank God for you, the Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you. God chose you as first fruits. These are some of the earliest people to respond to the gospel. He chose you. As God chose everybody who's on this, you know, on this, what is this? <laughs> Facebook, whatever it is. God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying is what we're talking about. Sanctifying means holying work. It is the work of 
getting up tomorrow and walking toward God, being a better disciple, being a little kinder, more compassionate, helping others, um, praising God, thanking God in ways you haven't before. That's what it is, day after day after day after day. And in that work, we are not alone. Because who is in that with us? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Spirit. And through belief, through faith, that's that tricky thing again, underneath, in the Greek, the word is, is, is pistis, through faith in the truth, trusting the truth, trusting the gospel, trusting Paul's teachings, trusting the Jesus whom you meet in the gospels as opposed to the Jesus that makes sense to you or you create with your own mind or something like that. to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you, God called you, to this through our gospel, through our good news. That gospel word there is a word of proclamation. So we could say he called you to this through our proclamation of good news. That so that you might share. In what? in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that you are part of it, he says to the Thessalonians, so that you're part of what's happening. So you're a part of this new life and this new world and these... This is a reminder. Oh, sorry. That's okay. These colonies of a new human race. And so he says then 15, and I think I'm going to end here. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm, Stand firm and hold fast, hold on strong to the teachings we passed on to you. Because Paul got them from whom? He got them from God, from Jesus. Hold, stand firm, hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So either Paul's there or he sends letters back. This is how they are learning the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, the, tr the larger story of God's redemptive work in this world, and they're to hold fast to it and hold true to it. And that is still a challenge 2,000 years later because there are people that want the Christian church to follow culture. Like wherever culture goes, the church goes running after it. But that 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 is that would not be what Paul says to do. Sure, we we change. I mean, our we gain a deeper understanding of Scripture, and the application is different in our world than in the ancient world. Sure, because those worlds are very different, but still we are to hold fast and to stand true um, to the Christian faith that is passed on to us and resist easy, trendy, simple changes. We don't follow culture. We stand firm. So, 
and hold fast. So, Patty, we're going to end there. Well, right. actually, maybe I'll do two more. I have time, because I'm right here to the end of chapter two, aren't I? We sure are. So he says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. You know, if you ask Robert Hasley what his gift was, he said that he was an encourager. That was it. Robert, what, what's the gift God gave you? He says, I'm an encourager. And he, believed me, he was. And so here he is to these Thessalonians who are being persecuted. Um, he reminds them that God, God loves them and Paul and the rest and poured out his grace on them um, in his e eternal encouragement and good hope. So encourage your hearts and strengthen yourself and let God strengthen you in every good deed and word. Um, never, never lose sight of what we are about. Stand firm, be encouraged, and rest in the grace and hope of God. So, yeah, it's wonderful. So when we come back together next week, we may dip into a few things there, and then we will go on to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Okay, and that will be actually the end of Second Thessalonians, and then we will go on to something else. Maybe Hosea, because I know Susan Faulkner, I think, suggested that last week, and it's a it's a wonderful book. I love the story of Hosea. So, okay, Patty, how art thou? <laughs> I'm, I'm fine, thank you. Good. Good. Well, I'm fine, thank you. So, I guess we're just going to close in prayer so you could get up to your executive meeting. and. I think we're going to close in prayer and I'll gather a few things together and head south. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And if you can, we'd love you to come tomorrow to Piero Hall at noon to be part of the Samuel class. And if not, you can join us right here on Facebook. Yes. Yeah, it's a good class. Yeah. It's it's a really full class. Uh, we've only met a few times, of course, so far in this brand Lots new book. Lots of new people and but excitement. Yeah, yeah, but there's, there's 70-plus people in person in the class. So it's one of those, if you don't want to maybe be sitting, like, way out, um, you might want to get there a few minutes before 12. And bring a lunch. Yes. Yeah, bring a lunch or a snack or whatever. Anyway, thank you, guys, and let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, God, so much for the love that you have for us, God, for the gift of your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we, we do pray to you, God, for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives to help us make good choices every day, Lord, to help us just stop for a minute, think actually what we're doing, and come to you in prayer. And Lord, we, we love you. We pray, God, that you would continue to watch over this group that's been meeting every single Monday for years, Lord. We pray that you would keep us safe and healthy, Lord, and bring us back together next week. All this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, adios, everybody. Bye, guys. Uh, stay warm tomorrow. Yes. Yeah.
Yeah. That means I can't wear flip-flops. No, flip-flops tomorrow. Darn. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, y'all. Bye.